We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke's Gospel in chapter 24, please. For good reason, somewhat of a tradition for us to read this portion of Scripture on Easter Sunday evening, Resurrection Sunday evening. And it's in Luke 24, starting in verse 13. And we'll add another one uh, to tonight. I'll give you an opportunity if you want to share a testimony of some sort, something about your own salvation, something about the resurrection of Christ that impressed you as you read the scriptures or participated in services today. Luke 24, verse 13 first, though, and then the testimonies. Then we'll read a little in John, and then I'll have some comments in the Gospel of Matthew as well. Now, behold, two of them that his disciples were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered, and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. 
And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Well, that last portion of the scripture there really fast forwards through the 40 days, doesn't it, of our Lord's ministry after his uh, resurrection. The first, the majority of that, of course, covering the afternoon evening period of Sunday, the first day in which he had been raised from the dead, and then it moves on quickly to verse 50 to the end of his ministry there uh, with them. And Luke will pick that up in the book of Acts again, as you know from reading chapter 1 of that book. Well, what a good reading of the word. Any uh, comments or testimonies, rather, tonight that you might like to share? Give you an opportunity for that out there this evening. And if not, why, we'll go on. All right. John's Gospel, then, in chapter 20, similar setting. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. John 20 and verse number 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands in his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, 
Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Oh, my friends, believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is your Jewish Messiah. He is our Messiah. We are grateful for him. Amen. All right. Anybody have a second thought about a testimony? Still have an opportunity. Naomi, did you want to uh, go upstairs or no? You can? Okay. All right. All right, we're going to have a a good teacher-student ratio this evening. All right, that's good. Very good. Okay. Excellent. All right, let's take our Bibles and then turn back to another gospel, and that would be in Matthew's gospel in chapter 17. We continue our, our trek through Matthew 17 together, and we'll just spend a few minutes here this evening, I'm sure, You are, uh, well, I'm guessing that you are like I am, a little bit tired after a long day and uh, until my voice is doing funny things to me here. So I'm going to do what I can with this portion, and then we'll go and rest. Matthew chapter 17, um, the, uh, the passage here is just amazing. The context is uh, amazing as well. Uh, but what we'll do to not belabor the point that we made earlier in our series is to just simply stipulate that, that the opening verse of, cha- of the chapter describes the fulfillment of Jesus' words in 1628. If you look at that, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that's not some cryptic prophecy of, uh, you know, they'll be alive when the Spirit of God comes and that's the start of the church and that's the start of the kingdom and all that kind of stuff that's very, uh, I don't know how you say, very sophisticated kind of thinking. It's a very simple situation. What he's saying is that the Son of Man is going to make an appearance in His glory and you're going to be able to see it. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you are going to be able to see Him in that glory, which will be what it will be like when he comes in his kingdom. And I think that we can very clearly understand it that way, or certainly understand it that way, because it's connected here in verse 17, 1, with this. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So the time marker seems to connect the two. To me, the two passages, 1628, 17.1. Remember uh, also that the chapter divisions are, from our perspective, kind of arbitrary. Um, I think it was Nick Russell, uh, old uh, minister of the gospel, who told us this story. Our brother remembers him, uh, who was speaking to a professor, and it may have been down at Auburn, and the professor brought up the 1628 passage as a contradiction in the Bible, saying, look, the disciples didn't live to see the kingdom of God begin. And so, uh, if I have my memory correct, Mr. Russell did, and, 
did take him to this chapter, and he was reading along at the end of chapter 16, and he read verse 28, and he just kept right on reading right into chapter 17. And the professor said, wait a minute, you can't do that, that's a new chapter. He said, oh yes I can, and let me instruct you about this matter of chapter divisions. Uh, There were no chapter divisions in the original manuscript, so uh, it's very reasonable for us to believe that uh, 28 is composed by Matthew, followed by 17.1 with no chapter or verse numbers, and he is intending for us to understand this is the fulfillment of that prophecy that the Lord made six days prior. So the time marker links the two narratives. Some of the disciples, in fact, did not die until they saw the coming kingdom glory of the Son of Man. Now, obviously, we grant that we don't see the kingdom itself in full flower, but they are seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They're getting a little preview of coming attractions, as it were. They're getting a teaser, if you will, in advertising language, and they're seeing what it's going to look like. This kind of thing would serve to strengthen them and us as we face difficulties in life and trials and for them deep persecutions, many of them dying as martyrs for the Lord and his namesake. Uh, these sort of little appearances of the Lord and the miracles and the signs and things would really be a, a strengthening factor for them. And the Lord will let, let them in on that. Now, they weren't able to tell anyone this, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, until later on. But we have the benefit of having it written down for us. Peter, James, and John are the inner circle disciples. We'll call them the, you know, the, um, I don't know, how, how can we say? They're the board members of the 12, uh, the, the ones kind of uh, on the top of the heap, and they are the ones allowed in to this. Now, when it says that he was transfigured before them, his face, verse 2, shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. This transformation uh, word, or transfiguration rather, is, is transformation, which comes from the word, I'll, I'll give it to you in English, kind of an English form, to metamorphosize or metamorphize. I don't know what the proper verb is for that, but you've got the idea. It's to it's to, to go through a metamorphosis, to say it in a longer form, which means to be changed either in a way that can be seen or in a way that is internal and cannot be changed. All of us who are believers in Christ have undergone a metamorphosis inside. We still look like our regular person, the old person that we were, but we're totally brand new on the inside. And of course, that would shine forth outwardly, you know, like if we get saved, we have a new joy, we have a new happiness, we have a new hope, we have a new, uh, a new conviction of things true and things that are false and wrong and, and false teaching and all that. So the metamorphosis from the inside comes out. Other times the metamorphosis is an outward uh, kind of transformation. We see this also in Mark 9 verse 2, which also is the, a parallel passage here. Luke 9 also is. Um, And then the inward change, we can look at two verses in Scripture to see the kind of idea of the inward change. And interestingly enough, the first one's in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, by the way. Interestingly enough, 
these four uses of the word, Matthew 17, Mark 9, the external metamorphosis, and then uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 and Romans 12.2 are the only four uses of this verb in the New Testament. In uh, verse number uh, 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, it says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Here the Bible's talking about sanctification, that process by which God makes us more and more and more like Jesus, and that's called here a transformation. It is a metamorphosis, little by little, uh, in us. And then the other one is in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and I'm sure some of you probably are already quoting that in your mind, racing me there in your mind. Um, Romans 12, 2, it says, and do, not, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind, both 2 Corinthians and Romans being internal transformations, obviously that have some external implications. Now, the transformation of Jesus before them... Oh, and by the way, I did use an illustration this morning that touches on this. Talk about metamorphosis. You're probably thinking of your, again, back to your sixth grade science class or whatever with your uh, uh, caterpillar and the chrysalis and the beautiful butterfly coming out at the end, the metamorphosis, the change of form. It's quite a dramatic uh, thing. And if you think about it just from a design engineering, evolution, you know, evolution perspective. You just marvel at the design of God that he created a caterpillar that would do this and come out. How does that work? I mean, that's amazing. God can do the same kind of transformation on us, can he, in our sanctification, and we're thankful for that. But the the Lord's uh, transfiguration or transformation is... Uh, as a pictured here, is uh, in verse 2, it says, His face shone like the sun. That's remarkable. Um, you know, the guys needed sunglasses, I guess, very quickly there. And then it says, His clothing was white as the light. So it may have been that he was wearing a light-colored or what we would you know, think should be a white robe, uh, it probably was, you know, not, um, you know, oxy-clean uh, kind of stuff back in that day in a washing machine and all. But in this case, it, it transformed somehow. And I think the inner glory of, of God was shining through that and brightening it. I'm not sure exactly. The other passages do talk about his clothing being, being whitened like no, like no launderer on earth can cleanse them or clean them. And so there's something that happens with this in this kind of visionary moment for them. And then thirdly, it indicates to us in the text, verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, this has always struck me as a bit strange. First of all, how did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? You know, I mean, they probably didn't have name tags on. (laughs) Uh, You know, hello, my name is and uh, fill in the blank with either Moses or Elijah. Perhaps the Lord told them, or he addressed 
uh, perhaps the Lord told the disciples, or as he was speaking with them, he used their personal names to talk with them. That's entirely reasonable to think that he would do that. We don't believe that this occurrence was just 30 seconds long. It was some length of time to it, and, and it talks about them talking with him. So there's some kind of conversation going on in the hearing of the disciples. And second, if you look over to Luke 9, in Luke 9, there's an interesting statement about what they're talking about. In Luke 9, 31, it says, um, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, okay, they also are looking something like Jesus, not exactly perhaps, but something like him in terms of the white uh, light, uh, the garments and the face shining. It says, they appeared in glory and spoke of his decease or his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were talking about Jesus going to soon be departing from the world, from Jerusalem, not too many days in the future. Now that's a little bit, that's, that's heavy, isn't it? When you think about it, they're talking about in just a little bit. Not many days in the future, you are going to have this amazing experience, this painful experience of providing for our redemption. Even for Moses and Elijah, their redemption too. Even though they were in heaven, their sins were not yet, as it were, completely covered because the historical event of Christ's death had not yet occurred. So, by his physical appearance, by his vestments, and by his company, Moses and Elijah, it is evident that he is far more glorious than what he had appeared to be in all of his earthly sojourn up to this point. Um, perhaps, well, I would say even including the baptism. Remember when the kind of a light shines on him, the Spirit of God descends on him in the form of a dove. It's, you know, the voice comes from heaven, a similar in that sense, but Uh, this would be more glorious even than that. We can take the words and we can try to imagine for a few moments his glorious appearance, the eye-hurting brightness, the awe of seeing two famous Old Testament figures accompanying Jesus and how the clothing would have changed its appearance and color. Just imagine that for a moment, if you would be nice if somebody would use their great talents in media as they have today, all these special effects, to do something with this portion of Scripture. And perhaps they have already with uh, some of the movies that that have been made about uh, the Gospels. But um, I'm not aware of uh, or remember this particular situation being portrayed in the glory that it would be for these disciples. This calls to mind other appearances of Christ accompanied by bright light. Think of one with me in Acts chapter 9. From heaven he calls out to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember that his appearance to Saul was accompanied by a great light so bright that I think it's the mechanism by which Paul was blinded for a while. The others couldn't see what was going on. They couldn't understand what was going on, the ones that were with Paul. And so we have that. And another appearance of Christ like this is in John's last book, which is 
in Revelation. And we'll go there just for a moment and see this other appearance of Jesus that looks like this. And I know I'm skipping over some that uh, we could go to in the Old Testament, which are probably um, also appearances of Christ. Here, in fact, uh, in in Isaiah chapter 6, there's one. John chapter 12 tells us that that, uh, Isaiah said these things when he saw his glory, his being referring back to Jesus. And so the Isaiah 6 appearance of God to Isaiah was, in fact, the pre, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in great glory. But let's focus on Revelation 1 here. Uh, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. John's response, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's kind of always the the standard response, if you will, of those who see the Lord's glory. Um, So I suspect that the appearance that John saw in Revelation was even, could I say, a notch greater than it was in John 17. I, I, I have that feeling based on the reading of it here. It's like as glorious as, John, or as Matthew 17 was, Revelation 1 is just another step higher because Christ has been in heaven for some time and has been returned to his full pre-incarnation glory, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He had a voice like a trumpet. And like many waters, just imagine a voice of God speaking through the God-man. Years ago, you might remember if you are a movie uh, buff, a Christian movie buff, I'll say, uh, or a a religious movie uh, aficionado, that there was a fellow who uh, played in a couple of movies, and his name was Charlton Heston. You remember him? Yeah. And uh, I heard an interview with him on a local radio station here, and uh, the, the host of the radio station said something to the effect when he heard his voice. He's like, that is the voice of God. Now, it was actually, his voice was the voice of Moses and the voice of Ben-Hur in those two movies. But, um, you know, he did have a distinctive, uh, a distinctive voice. But the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ is not that voice. It's far elevated above that even uh, wonderful human voice. Well, he had a voice like that. He was like the Son of Man. That's how he looked to John. His garment was down to the feet, and he had a golden band around his chest. He had white hair. Is that right? 
hair white like wool and his head, that, that resplendent glory. His eyes were a flame of fire. Those were not, um, how do they do that today? With uh, contact lenses that change the color of your eyes? These were not contact lenses, my friends. This is real. His feet are like refined brass, fire refined brass or bronze. It says brass actually uh, here. Uh, Something like that, very shiny it seems. He had seven stars and he had a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. It's like the word of God, you know, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing of of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. We'll see that sword play a role later on in the book of Revelation when he destroys the the Antichrist and his his enemies when he comes in Revelation 19. It says his face was shining like the sun at full strength, you know, not a hazy sun glancing off at an angle. You know the difference between those two kinds of sunshines, don't you? Um, we're more uh, cognizant of that with a uh, installation of some solar panels, you know, and you think about how the sun shines on those things. And in the high noon at, in, in June, July, and August, the, the sun is directly beaming on those panels. But uh, in the wintertime, it's just kind of at a low angle, and it's not as effective at producing the electricity. This portrayal is that this is the, sh- the sun shining at its full strength. That's how he looks and the glory of him. You, you, you would have to, I mean, don't you have to turn your face away from the sun shining at full strength? I mean, you can't just look at it, can you? You cannot. It's too much to bear. And that, that is the sun at, what is it, 93 million miles away or something like that? The light taking eight minutes to travel from there to here because it's so far away. And, and it's just, you know, a little ball in the sky, and you have to turn your eyes away from it. Here, here's John standing really basically very close to the Son of Man. What a bright appearance of the Lord. Well, so that's how it looks, something like that anyway, maybe a little lesser version here in Matthew 17, but substantially similar. And uh, it says in verse number four, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, Peter's estimation of the situation was it's good for us to be here. I think it was good for them to be there. It's not bad, but he desired to make three small dwelling places for them so that they could dwell there for a long time. These tabernacles or booths call to mind the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, it would be for them as Jewish men quite easy to hastily throw up these uh, structures of wood branches of of, uh, leafy branches and so on to have some little shelter for them. A nice gesture, I would say. Uh, Not meant to be, though. This was a a temporary uh, thing that God was showing to the disciples. Uh, but the Lord had a mission to accomplish, and so he couldn't you know, hang around there on this Mount of Transfiguration for any length of time. Uh, and, and neither Peter nor Satan could swerve him from that. Uh, neither temptations in the wilderness could swerve him from his mission, 
nor could Peter's declaration, this shall not be to you, Lord, earlier on. Remember, we read in chapter 16 when Peter was upset that Jesus began to speak about his, his impending death and all of that. Um, and so none of that could swerve him from this. And in not even you know, the nice gesture of having some tabernacles there. Well, the whole scene is interrupted next, suddenly, when something else happens. And that's in verses 5 through 7, where the Bible says, while he was still speaking, that is, while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud. So this is basically God saying to Peter, stop talking while I'm interrupting you, okay? You know, I'm talking now, Um, and and. Peter didn't have a chance to finish really even what he was saying because there was something more important coming. And this is quite significant theologically here. Just a moment, you'll see. Uh, The voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, Moses and Elijah are significant persons in the Old Testament era who represented the law and the prophets, respectively. There's no question that they're important. But one stands there greater than both of them, and in fact, to whom they pointed the people of Israel, right? Moses talked about a prophet coming after me who's greater than me. You must listen to him, ultimately speaking about Jesus, uh, to a great Messiah, to a coming king. These are the things that Moses and Elijah and the law and the prophets witnessed to. So this uh, bright cloud overshadows them. Um, now, usually clouds are not bright, are they? You've seen, I'm sure you've seen some bright clouds that are kind of thin that the sun is shining through and they look bright, but, uh, you know, often they're less than bright and less bright than the sky around them. But this was a special cloud. This was clearly an odd situation. For out of it came a voice from heaven. And the first part of the message was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, The stamp of approval of God the Father upon God the Son. And this is like Matthew 3.17. Remember at the baptism, I mentioned that before. God says the same thing. This is my beloved Son. The second part of the message is two words. At the end of verse 5, hear him. I think there can be no mistaking the message here. Moses and Elijah were worthy of being heard in their day. In fact, if somebody didn't listen to Moses, it was off with their head, so to speak. Obviously, they used not the guillotine, but the the method of stoning if someone was rebellious against the word of God through Moses in that day. And Elijah, uh, the same thing. I mean, the the prophets on Mount Carmel noticed or figured that out right quick when he uh, dispatched them after uh, their false uh, or failed uh, offering attempt with their gods. They were to be heard, but Jesus far surpasses them because he's the Son of God, not a mere man. It's time now, God says, to turn attention to Jesus instead of to Moses and instead of to Elijah. He brings the fulfillment about what they spoke about 1,400 years ago and 700 years ago, not from our time, but from the time of Peter, James, and John. Those many years ago, 1,400 B.C., 700 B.C., these guys uh, spoke. Now, actually, that time, I have to double-check that 700, but let's say more or less, okay? 
Uh, and if you look at Hebrews, Hebrews 1, you kind of see the point here, I think. Hebrews chapter 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So what this is doing is it's reorienting the disciples from thinking of Moses and Elijah and turning their attention to Jesus. Hear him. Okay? They have their place, but now it's time to listen to Jesus. We're changing gears here. We're, we're shifting into a new era, and you need to hear him. Now, when they hear the voice from heaven, the disciples were overwhelmed. All that they had seen so far was probably enough, I think, to make them fearful. I would, I would think so, but maybe it didn't strike them that way. But when they, they, saw, they heard this voice and they saw no one speaking and they said, uh-oh, this is God. God is in this place. Then they fell on their faces and were greatly, <clears throat> greatly afraid. But suddenly then, verse 8, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The heavenly guests were gone The transfiguration was over. Just as quick as it began, it disappeared. And the Lord told them not to be afraid anymore. Now, as they wrapped up, they came down from the mountain. Jesus, verse 9, commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, why did he tell them not to tell anybody? Well, this helped reduce the chances that there would be a premature attempt to move to make Jesus king, which had happened already in John chapter 6 when the people experienced the feeding of the 5,000. What happened was they intended to come by force and to make him king, which in a sense you can appreciate that's kind of a good thing, but they were wanting a king on the wrong terms. Uh, with the wrong motivation, if you will, wrong material motivation. Um, So since they had just seen Elijah again and Moses, but Elijah particularly, they asked him indeed, or they said, uh, why then describe say that Elijah must come first? And so Jesus gives them a short answer to that question. And the answer is, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So no change in the prophetic program. Elijah has promised to come again before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers, the children to the fathers, and, and, um, and, and make, way, make straight the ways of the Lord. He will ask them for repentance and so on, just like John the Baptist did. <clears throat> and he has come. And it says in verse 12, um, that, well, verse 11, sorry, I don't want to get ahead of myself. He is going to come and he will restore all things. No change there. But then verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah has come already. Uh Uh-oh, there's a little wrinkle. What do we do with that? And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. 
Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. So to un, kind of untangle this in your mind, you, you're going to be saying, well, is John the Baptist Elijah? Did Elijah come already? Is he still coming or what? Just take the text at face value. It makes it easy, okay? Jesus said, Elijah is coming still, still on the program, okay? The menu is still set that way. Okay, done. We've got that. Then he says, Elijah has come. At the end of verse 13, they understood him to be speaking of John the Baptist. And there's no negative comment there that they were wrong. So they were correct. Jesus was speaking to them about John the Baptist. And what did he mean by this? Well, John the Baptist self-testified, I'm not the prophet, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah. Remember when the, when the Pharisees came, sent representatives to ask him, John chapter 1, who are you? I'm not Elijah. He's not Elijah. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, Elijah has come already. The guy who came, the scripture says, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came and he prepared the way of the Lord. And the Lord even said in this kind of enigmatic counterfactual statement, if you would have received it, this was Elijah which was to come. But they didn't receive the message of John the Baptist, nor did they receive the message of Jesus. So in fact, it was not Elijah. It was John the Baptist who was the first forerunner and the Elijah will come second, but later after or right uh, before the se- actual second coming of the Lord. What they didn't understand was that the coming of the Lord was in two phases. A blessed truth that we understand because we have been given more revelation from God's word. They didn't get it that there was one coming suffering, a second coming glory. We understand that now, and so we can unravel this even easy, more easily than the disciples could. Now, they were fast on the uptake here. You know, other times, like when the Lord said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they were like, oh, is he talking about bread? No, he wasn't talking about bread. He was talking about the doctrine, their false teaching. And so they, they didn't quite get that on a very, in a very quick manner. But this one, they seemed to pick up on. They said, oh, okay, he's not actually talking about Elijah. He's talking about John the Baptist, who is very similar to Elijah. Unfortunately, John the Baptist went unrecognized by the authorities. Blind as they were to spiritual reality, their depravity drove them to abuse and kill John the Baptist. Now, that was obviously through the instrumentality of Herod, who wanted him dead, and Herod's wife uh, and, and daughter, Um, but Jesus foretells that he himself is likewise going to suffer at their hands. So here's another foretelling or foreshadowing of the death of Christ at the hands of the religious leaders and the Romans of the time. So that brings us to the end of verse 13. It really brings us to the end of my comments on the passage tonight. And uh, I just want to just remind you, just think about what this is going to look like when you see the Lord yourself with your own eyes, you're going to see him looking something like what we saw here in the Transfiguration or in Revelation chapter 1. And that vision, I pray, will sustain you when you are in the the dark times of why is the world so messed up? Why does my life have suffering in it? 
what is all this stuff going on? Remember the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, which glory the Bible says we will share with him when he comes to be glorified in his saints, and uh, we are looking forward to that. But uh, certainly a great uh, picture here of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he uh, looks like in his glorified state. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day that we've had today, for the uh, opportunity we've had to study the Word, to be uh, challenged in it, to be edified from it. And I pray, Lord, that some even hearing it in these four walls or online was saved by it as we rehearsed what the Scripture says. Today, this day in 2022, in April the 17th, may one or more come to know Christ. And may we continue on that path of metamorphosis, being changed from one glory to the next, not being conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Be reminded of that as Jesus was transformed from his earthly uh, veiled glory to that full out expression of it, that someday we will share in that glory as well. And even be transformed like Philippians 3 says, that our bodies will be fashioned after his glorious body. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We will dismiss you and hope you have a good evening. Thanks for those of you that are watching online. Hope that was edifying for you as well. And we'll be in touch. Uh, with you in days ahead. If you have any questions, any concerns, any uh, challenges or whatever, uh, let us know if we can be of help to you. I did learn uh, through one brother in this afternoon a little research that uh, Cicero was one who wrote of the assassination of Julius Caesar, and he was he was on the uh, in the Senate, I guess you would say, uh, and apparently was a witness of those events. There's conflicting stories though as to what he thought of the uh, of the whole operation, he wasn't in, you know involved in that, but uh, you know he was um, he was certainly knowledgeable about it, and as a well known Roman statesman, uh, had something some things to say about it. So, but even still, my argument stands, doesn't it? That if you have you know one eyewitness writing eyewitness, that was the key thing that I was making the point of this morning. We have writings about things, but do we have writings that are from the pen, the hand of an eyewitness? And in the New Testament, we have that uh, very much and very accurately transmitted to us, and we can certainly prove that through, uh, through manuscript data that we have. So uh, no, there's no excuse for us to not believe that which has been transmitted to us by way of eyewitness account. Amen. All right. Having made that minor correction, we move on into uh, the rest of our Lord's day, uh, evening, and I pray your, God will bless you and keep you. Amen. Good night.